0: Good morning, church family. Uh, Happy Memorial Day to all of you. What a moving rendition of uh, Blades of Grass and Pure White Stone by our choir. Thank you, Chad, for that prayer. I invite you to turn open in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And this morning we're going to be looking at uh, United in Christ, which is actually the title of the entire series that we are in in Ephesians Um, uh, united in Christ. And I want us to do a brief review because, as I remember uh, correctly, Ephesians 1 through 3 is about what we believe. Paul is articulating to the church in Ephesus what we believe as, as followers of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, he turns the page, if you will. It's like a hinge on a door and it swings open. And now we walk through the door based on what we believe in light of all that we believe. Now, how are we as followers of Jesus Christ to live? to live. And so I want us to just briefly walk through what we have walked through in Ephesians chapters one through three, and that will set the stage for this morning's uh, message in chapter four. So I have up on the screen here the first sermon that we did, which was March 5th in Ephesians, and it really details the seven spiritual blessings that all followers of Jesus Christ have in Him. The seven spiritual blessings are that before the foundation of the world, God determined that those who are in Christ will be holy and blameless in his sight, that those who are in Christ will be predestined to be adopted as sons and daughters into his family when they are glorified, that those who are in Christ are in fact redeemed by his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That in fact we are enlightened to the mystery of God's will. That in fact we are predestined to receive an inheritance when we meet Jesus face to face. And number six, that we are included in Christ when we first believe. And then finally, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, which is a deposit guaranteeing that inheritance at the end of the days when we will have our bodies redeemed by God himself, the purchased redemption of the body. And so those are the seven spiritual blessings. If you are in Christ this morning, you have those blessings. But then secondly, Paul turns the page in chapter 1 and he says, now let me share with you three ways in which you can know Christ more intimately. It's the hope of his calling. We're going to be talking about our calling in Christ this morning. The second piece is the riches of his inheritance. This is God's inheritance that we then receive as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then thirdly, the power of his resurrection, the resurrection power that is ours in Christ. And then when we ch- went to chapter two, we looked at the three steps To our salvation in Christ. Those three steps are we have to recognize in every person in the world who is created in the image of God, nevertheless, is separated from God by our sin, sin that separates us from a holy God. God is holy and cannot commune with the sinfulness of humanity. And so what did God do? He gave us his grace, unmerited favor. And that's how we're saved. You are saved by grace, through faith. And that's not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. But then after you come to Christ, after you find your place in the family of God, God doesn't want you to sit down and just rest. He now has work for you and I to do. And so it's faith that serves is that third step and so we're going to be emphasizing that aspect this morning in the sermon. And then the second part of chapter two is this, is that it um, really is talking about how now the two have become one. If you recall, in the church in Ephesus there were really two groups of people. There were Gentile converts and there were Jewish converts and they didn't necessarily get along. Uh, they both look down on one another. And so Paul says that now in Christ you are one. The Gentiles are no longer Gentile. You are now Christians. You Jews are no longer Jewish. You are now Christian. We are one in Christ. And he emphasizes one blood, one body, and one building of God that God is preparing for us to do. And then he moves into the latter part of chapter 3 where we talk about the emphasis of the mystery. He actually describes for us and defines this mystery of Christ that, in fact, the Gentiles have been included in. And he goes all the way back to emphasize what Abraham learned from God, that God, in his divine plan, had always intended for all of the world to be available to come to Christ, that he chose a nation The Jewish people. But then after that, he of course then emphasized that all Gentiles can come into the family of God. How? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the mystery. But then after that, we have the riches of his glory, the riches of Christ himself. And we talked about the treasure that we have in Jesus Christ. And so then we moved on finally to last week and we looked at the fullness of of Christ and we see at the latter part of chapter 3 here that this is a beautiful depiction of the trinitarian nature of God the glory of the father the power of the spirit and the love of the son that we emphasize here that when you come into Christ that you are imbued by the glory of God that all of us have the glory of God within us, and it has to shine out. If we try to take the glory for ourselves, we are robbing God of His glory. And so ultimately, our job is to reflect the glory of God out to a world, as Chad prayed, so desperately needs to hear the love of Jesus Christ. When you let that glory shine out, when you let the power of the Spirit work in your inner being, in the very essence of who you are, then you are a vessel that is usable and moldable and shapeable by God himself. And then finally, the love of Christ must dwell in your hearts. Do you have a heart for people? Do you love others in spite of how nasty or mean or unlovable they may be? In Christ, you have the ability to love them as he loves them because now, because you are in Christ you have the capacity to extend agape love. Love that is flowing out from you, unconditional to those around you. This is the power of God. And of course, he then ends chapter 3 with a doxology. And he says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So the Apostle Paul here is really hitting a crescendo in his letter. And then he turns the page to chapter 4 where he says, In light of all that I have just said, how we are to believe, now I'm going to share with you how you are to behave. From belief to behavior, from principle to practice, from doctrine to duty. How do you work? How do you live? How do you let the glory of God shine through you? Well, we're going to learn that this morning here in Ephesians 4. Stand with me, if you are able, for the reading of God's word. The reading of God's word. And I'm just going to read these first six verses for us this morning. and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Father, this is your word, written by Paul the Apostle 2,000 years ago to the church in Ephesus. A church that was struggling to engage its culture with the love of Christ. A church that was oftentimes wondering if this faith that they possess will lead to their death. But Lord Paul urges them even as a prisoner himself for the faith to live a life worthy of the calling and to be united by the spirit in the bond of peace. May we do that here at Ashley River, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So first, there's really just two keys to a healthy church. If we were to look at Ashley River Baptist Church, we would ask ourselves these two questions. Are we, as a church body, walking in a worthy manner to the calling that we have received? Are we living a worthy Life. Notice here in verse one, it says, Paul, as a prisoner for the Lord, then. Often, in many of your versions of scripture, if it's not the NIV, will say therefore at the very beginning of chapter four, meaning that chapters one through three, this is true, this is true, this is true, therefore. In other words, how do you live a life worthy of the calling in light of all that we believe about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit? And he says, as a prisoner for the Lord then. This is the second time that Paul has mentioned that he's a prisoner. It will not be the last in this letter. Paul wants to emphasize that he has gone to the mat for Jesus Christ. He has paid the sacrifice of preaching the gospel unashamedly, boldly, confidently, in order that all may be saved. And so Paul is in prison and he's telling them, I'm a prisoner. And then he says this word, urge. I urge you then. The word urge means to beseech, to plead, to beg even. I'm begging you. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Let me ask us a question this morning. Think back over a year ago. Last Memorial Day weekend. Where were you? Where were you physically? Were you in Charleston? Were you on your way to Charleston? Was Charleston not even in your mind? You were living somewhere else. Where were you living? What house were you living in? Were you, are you still in the same home? What about the relationships that you had? Who did you hang out with? What was your life like? How would you paint the picture of your life? Both where you lived and the relationships that you enjoyed. Now let me ask you a deeper question. Where were you in your walk with Christ? Where were you a year ago? Now, think a year later. Here we are, 2023. Where are you in your walk with Jesus Christ today? Has there been any progress? Have you grown closer to the Lord Jesus Christ? Has he become more real to you Have you learned more about his word and about him? Then let me ask you this question. Does Jesus know you more intimately? Because of the time that you have devoted to spending with him in prayer, in Bible study, in fellowship, and in worship. All of us are called to live a life worthy. The word worth is value. Value, Valuable to whom? To God the Father. Oh, my heart wants to be a kind of person who says, Lord, I no longer want Randy to ever show up in my relationships with others. I only want them to see Jesus. Is that your heart's cry this morning? My prayer is that all of us will take this calling of a life lived worthily to heart you know paul himself identifies four attributes if you notice it there what does it mean to live a life worthy of the calling you have received well the first one is humility notice what it says there be completely humble humility now hum to be humble is not thinking less of yourself it is thinking of yourself less. Does that make sense? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. In fact, the scriptures are replete with these kinds of encouragements. God guides the humble in what is right. God esteems, uh, gives grace to the humble. God esteems the humble and the contrite in spirit. And who's our example? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now what is humility all about? It's not a weakness. It's a, it's a powerful dignity of knowing that you are God's creation, and every single aspect of your life should be to glorify your creator. We live in a culture right now where we all want to draw attention to ourselves. You see, the opposite of humility is what? Pride. Pride. I want to take center stage. I want the lights on me. I want to post what I'm doing, what I'm working on, who I am, all of these things are literally ta- taking attention to yourself and pulling them away from the one who created you and has a purpose for you and has a plan for you. You see, all of us in the church, sometimes we hold ourselves up. You see, what is the devil's number one sin? Pride. He had pride in his heart, it says in Ezekiel chapter 28. And that pride is what goes before destruction. A haughty spirit leads to a fall, you see. And so we, as the church, need to be humble. What does it mean to be humble? It means to set others before ourselves. In our walk every day, we should be of the opinion that other people matter more than we do. Not that it's not that we're not valuable, just that we want to emulate our savior jesus christ and what did he do when his disciples came this is the night before he died when his disciples came to him what did he do what did jesus do he washed their feet he did this as an example to show them this is the king of the world This is the Savior. This is the man who will go to the cross and die for the sins of all mankind. And what does he do the night before he is betrayed and crucified? He washes his disciples' feet. Friends, how are you washing people's feet? How are you getting to the place where you're saying, I am more worried about you because my Savior teaches me to place your needs before my own. This is what worthy living is all about in the church. It's an act of service. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. You see, here it is, Memorial Day weekend. We honor the men and women of our armed services. You know, as a Navy guy, I, I, cut, I, I, I teared up as I watched that video. And I saw these family members like gathering around the tombstone of their loved one because their loved one gave all. They sacrificed their life. But here's the beauty of it. Our Savior Jesus Christ laid down His life for all. For all of us. And he lives now. And he is at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you and I. So humility. Humility. Number two, there's gentleness. Look at what it says. Be completely humble and gentle. Gentleness is a sensitivity of disposition. Sensitivity of disposition founded on strength and prompted by love. That's, what's, that's what gentleness really means, the heart of that word. And it's the example, of course, we find, we, we find several verses here that reference it. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Um, Philippians 4.5, let your gentleness be evident to all. And then in 1 Peter 3.15, when you're sharing the gospel, it says here when you're sharing the hope that you have in Christ, do so with gentleness. And respect, it's having this disposition of a, a sensitivity toward others. Many would say, well, men are not gentle, they're, not, they're strong and rough. No, gentleness has this quiet strength. That doesn't need to be on display. It can be emulated by the service of the person and the way in which they approach it. Look at Jesus Christ when he rode into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. What did it say? He came gentle and riding on a donkey during his triumphal entry. He came gentle and riding on a donkey as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, I see the gentleness of Jesus Christ in the The adulterous woman. The woman caught in adultery. And you know the story there in John chapter 8. What happened? Jesus comes into the crowd and of course they want to stone this woman for adultery. Which of course was what was written in the law. So they were doing what they thought what the law would require. And then Jesus looks with compassion on this woman. With such gentleness. And he stoops down. And he starts writing into the dirt. And as he's writing in the dirt, you can start to see the disposition of those with rocks change. And then he writes again. And I, I believe that he is really doing what is written in Jeremiah seventeen nine, that he wrote their sins in the dirt. That he was actually calling out their sinful lifestyle as they were condemning this woman in adultery. You see? And then what does he do? Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And then what happens? One by one, beginning with the elders, the oldest of them, the ones who had enough of life to know that they were sinful, that they were separated from a holy God because of their sin. And what did he do? They started dropping them one by one. What did Jesus do then? He then came and help the woman up, and what did he say? Does no one condemn you? Neither do I. But he didn't stop there. He extended grace, yes, but he also extended truth, something our society needs to hear. We need to extend grace, yes, but we also need to know the truth. And the truth is, is that young woman needed to stop her life of adultery, and Jesus told her, go and sin no more. And that's the beautiful gentleness of Jesus Christ. Now contrast that with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In Luke chapter 18, we learn the story of the Pharisee who goes out onto a street corner, lifts his hands high in the air, his face toward heaven. He says, oh, thank God. Thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile. Thank you, God, that I am not a sinner. I am not an adulterer. I'm not an evil person. I'm not a tax collector even. Oh, Lord, thank you that I fast twice a week and I give a tithe of everything I own. That's the Pharisee. And then Jesus says, now the tax collector goes off into an area that is not seen and he can't even look up into heaven. His head is bowed down. He is in a contrite, Posture. And he says, Oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And of course, Jesus' lesson in this parable is what? Which one do you think went home justified before the Lord? It was that tax collector, it was that man who was contrite in spirit, who was humble, you see, who was understanding of his position with a holy God. And I think that when we come to this place of self-awareness of our own sin condition, we will have greater, as Anne-Marie said, mercy to extend to others. It's when we have this self-righteousness that that it's a hard core. We think we've got it all figured out, but we don't. The only difference is that we're in Jesus. We're in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, that's what God wants us to do, is come to this place of recognition that He is is the one who has saved us. And then thirdly, there's patience. Patience, look at what it says there. Be patient, be patient. Now, I don't know about you, but I have trouble being patient. This is one of my uh, areas to work on, as they say. Patience is difficult, but it's the capacity to tolerate changes or delays without getting upset. That's what patience really is. Uh, Proverbs 19.11 says this, a man's wisdom gives him patience. If you're wise, how do you? How are you wise? The, with the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. When you fear God, He gives you wisdom, and that wisdom then gives you patience. Romans twelve twelve says this: Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. And in 1 Corinthians thirteen four, he says, "Love is patient, love is kind. Love keeps." And he keeps going on. This is the great love chapter. But he begins with the fact that love is patient. And so patience is something that we have to endure, don't we? All of us are traveling in Charleston right now with all this traffic. How many of you struggle, this is a rhetorical device, don't raise your hand. How many of you struggle in the traffic being patient? Oh, I just told you, don't raise your hand. See, now we know who the impatient people are. We all are, aren't we? It's, It's incredible. Some people ride with purpose. They drive with purpose. Others have no purpose whatsoever. They are just on a cruise ride and it doesn't matter that there are 10 car lengths between them and the next car. Do you all understand what I'm saying? I want to get through the light, but the guy in front of me doesn't seem to care. You all understand how that works. Patience is a virtue. But it's a difficult virtue to. How do you get patient? It's when you come to this realization each and every morning when you say, Lord, I'm going to cast all my cares on you. And I'm not going to use a yo-yo to do it. There's no strings attached. And I'm going to live for you. No matter what comes my way, I'm going to have patience. I'm going to have gentleness. I'm going to have humility. And then fourthly, I'm going to have love. 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 (laughs) You know, Jesus himself, um, you know, demonstrated love. It says there in John 13, 34 through 35, As I have loved you... So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In Romans 12.10, it says, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. And then First Peter 4.8, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Remember I said that it's an agape love. This love, this word love is agape, meaning unconditional. There's no conditions on it. You love them without condition. And the point is, is that love is not a feeling. Love is a verb. Love is a verb. That means you have to act. You have to take initiative in order to extend love to those around you. And so we, as the church are called by Paul here to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have received. This calling of being his church in our world. And it's emulated by these four attributes. Humility, gentleness, patience, and love. But then he goes and gives us the second aspect of a healthy church. And that is to be united by the Spirit. You know, Paul implores them to make every effort. It takes work to maintain unity even within the church. It's not the same as uniformity. It's unity. That is that we are united in Christ. He is the one who centers us on him. It requires selflessness. It requires thinking of others before ourselves for us to be there. The unity of the spirit is based on, as it says here, the bond of peace. Do you know what the word for bond is? It means belt. Belt in the Greek. And what it means is that this this bond of peace surrounds us. We as the church, we're part of the family of God and the belt of peace or the bond of peace holds us together. None of us gets outside of this belt of peace. All of us are contained within it. We are now one. We're part of the same family. We're part of the same group of people. And therefore, we're like, hey, I may not necessarily like everything you do, but you're a brother and sister in Christ and I'm going to love you. I'm going to demonstrate the love of Christ with you. And so that's how we keep together. You understand the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you is the same Holy Spirit that lives inside of your brothers and sisters in Christ. He's the one who brings us together. And so how do we do this? Well, there are seven unifying elements that Paul lists out here. And this is a famous verse of Scripture. In verse 4, it says there is one body. When I say one body, what I mean is that all Christians are part of the body of Christ. In Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12, we learn that we are all part of one body. We are many different members, but all part of one body. No one member is more important than the others. All of us are needed. All of us are essential. In fact, one of the main reasons we come together, we gather here in the church, is that when you're going through a difficult time, I guarantee you that God has placed you in this fellowship so that you have somebody else here in this fellowship who have gone through something similar. And they can minister to you, they can encourage you, they can strengthen you, they can pray for you like none other. I'm convinced that I have cancer. And the reason I have cancer is that now I can become a better minister to those who are fighting cancer in our fellowship. It's a way for me to be able to say, I know exactly what you're going through. I'm going through it with you. And I will tell you, I have a deeper, deeper bond and connection with the people of our church who are going through that battle. Why? Because I too am going through it. But maybe somebody here just recently got divorced or maybe somebody here is struggling with their children and they're kind of wayward. How, how can you come together? It's because you can relate to each other because you're part of one body of Christ. But then secondly, there's this one spirit. It says one spirit there. We are unified by the spirit of God which lives in us. Every one of us has the Spirit of God living in us. And when we read the Word of God, the writer of the Word of God is the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are gifted by the Holy Spirit to understand His Word and to apply it to our daily living. We have one hope. Look at what it says there in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18 of Ephesians. It says, "And And I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you the hope to which he has called you. We just talked about the seven spiritual blessings we have in Christ. All of our hope of the future is wrapped up in those promises of God. We are unified by the hope of our calling because we have been adopted into his family, because we will be conformed into his image, because we will be recipients of his inheritance. Those are beautiful blessings that we receive but not only one hope, but one Lord. Jesus Christ is your Savior, yes, but is He your Lord? Now this is really where I'm going to get to the heart of it all. You see, many of us receive Christ and we say, yes, I want the salvation, I want the eternal life, I want all the blessings that come with it. But I still want to hold on to my life. I still want to have control of what I do. You see, this is where the real Christian surrenders all. This is where the Christian who is mature is not tossed about by waves of doctrine. They are committed to Christ no matter what because he is your Lord. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you can just trust me and then go on living your own life. Is that what he said? He said, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, I don't know about you, but in that very simple sentence, Jesus just took every privilege that you think you have away from you. We are to live for him. He is our Lord. And when he's our Lord, we do what he says. And it's plainly spelled out in his word to us. How do you know how to follow the Lord? You read his word. And that's how you become a follower of Christ, so committed, so surrendered to Him, that He then becomes so essential in your life that you can't breathe without Him. He is all to you. That's why I love when I survey the wondrous cross. Such amazing grace demands my soul, my life, my all, it says. You see, that's where the rubber meets the road for most Christians. Most of us have received the Savior. We're still trying to be the Lord of our own life. Give it up. Just get to the end of yourself and say, God, it's you. It's you and not me. When you get to that place, I promise you, there is tremendous freedom because now it doesn't depend on you. It depends on the one who knows everything about you, who knows your future just as well as he knows your past. He understands where you're headed. He understands every trial, every tribulation, every trial in your life because he himself is God and not you, okay? And then there's this one faith. It says one faith. You know, we have one set of doctrines that guides all believers. You and I understand the faith, That Jesus was born of a virgin. That He lived a sinless life. That He was betrayed on the night before the Passover. And that He died on a cross. A cruel Roman cross. He was crucified. And then He was put in the grave. In a borrowed grave. And on the third day, on that first Easter Sunday, He rose from the dead. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. No one's ever lived like that after death. And he showed himself to his disciples and more than 500 followers at one time. Over 40 days where he taught them about the kingdom of God. And he told them, I'm coming back. And when I come back, I will come in power. It'll be my second coming I will not come as a suffering servant. I will come as a conquering king. Oh, even so, Lord Jesus, come. That is the belief that we have, the one faith that we have in him. And then it says one baptism. In Romans 6, 4, it talks about baptism and the fact that baptism symbolizes our death, burial, and resurrection in Jesus Christ. We are baptized by the Holy Spirit. It's that deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of God's possession. We have one baptism. And then there's one God and Father of all. It says, God is the father of the family and we are his children. We have an older brother, Jesus Christ, who sets the example for us. And we have the Holy Spirit living in us to unite us. The guiding principle is founded in chapter four of uh, Ephesians. Look at what it says there, 4.14. It says, then, then we will no longer be infants tossed Back and forth on the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, Jesus Christ. And so you and I have the opportunity to grow up into the head. The head is Jesus Christ. And by his power, we are sealed for the day of redemption. I can't wait. I can't wait for the day that I meet Jesus face to face. But until then, I'm going to run. I'm going to run like there's no tomorrow. I'm going to live a life worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ on my life. What about you? Are you going to live a life worthy of the calling you have received? Are you going to stand in unity as the family of faith? We're such a unified body already. We love each other. I mean, even John Acker will sing for us as a group. And we will all love him for it. Okay, the beauty of it is is that we're all part of the same family. And guess what? There are thousands and thousands and millions and millions of people who are worshiping Jesus Christ this very hour all over the world. Jesus Christ is the reason we gather. He is the reason that we're here. He is the reason we've surrendered our life. So now that you've surrendered it, live for Him. Let us pray. Let us pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your love. We thank You for Your mercy, Your grace, Your kindness, Your goodness, Your gentleness. All the things that you bring to the table, Father, they're all ours in Christ. Lord, help us to surrender our lives fully to you. Help us to really live a life worthy of the calling that we have received from you. We're not just to receive the salvation of Christ, but to receive him as our Lord. Oh, Lord, teach us. Oh, Lord, guide us. Oh, Lord, direct us. Help us to live a life worthy of the calling that you have given to us. And Lord, I pray that at this time, As we respond, we'll remember what it's like to surrender all for you and your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.